Um, well, I'd love you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8, verses uh, 10 to 14 tonight. We're in the second week of our mini-series on Proverbs, and uh, we're looking at a few key verses here. A chapter entitled, Wisdom's Call. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Oh, there we go. We've got some musical accompaniment tonight. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. Wow, okay, that's a pretty heavy scripture for you right there. <laughs> so, um, we're going to just sit in that a bit uh, tonight and have a look at a few things. So what, I, need, I, need, I need a couple of volunteers. Tash, you can come up and help me to start with. So I've got four precious scrolls with a, with a paper clip, and you can choose a color of preference. I've got green, red, orange, yellow, or just plain. What would you like to choose? Yeah, okay, so unroll the scroll, let's see what you've got. Um, pull it out, just, just hold it up for everyone. Wow, you, you have struck gold. Okay, you have got, you've, you've ostensibly won in an imaginary sort of way tonight. Three, yeah, I like these dollars, right? it's, it's dollars tonight. It's $314,900,000. That was pretty easy, wasn't it? Who would like to go next? Who's, yes, thank you, Will. You're obviously feeling the pinch. Aren't we all like this moment? Yeah. You're hoping. No, you've got to hold up. Don't tear it up. You need to hold on to that. What colour would you like to choose? The red one. Good choice. Okay, here we go. Let's see what you've got. And uh, just unroll the scroll. Uh, $27 million. How are you feeling? Um, I'll take it. <laughs> A slight tone of slight disappointment, though, comparative to the 314, I thought. Who'd like to go next? Who, who else is feeling ready for that. Yes, go on. Yes, go on, Deborah. Come up. Come on, why not? Um, so I've just got, sadly, I've just, some friend who's got the green and the plain left. What would you like to choose? Okay. Okay. Sorry. Are you in marketing? <laughs> Call it silver was the, was the claim there. 6.5 million pounds. How, how are you feeling? Um, I'm still okay with that, actually. <laughs> Everyone's okay. I'll just remind you again, it is all imaginary. <laughs> Oh, okay. It's, it's, yeah, okay. Yeah, marginally, sadly, exchange rates aren't great, are they? I think the pound's got a little bit weaker recently. Uh, so just one left. Who, who would like to join me with the last, the last go? Yes, go on. Chen times. Thank you. Yeah, then Jen. Just the plain silver for you. Okay, unroll the scroll. Uh. So, how, you, how are you feeling right now? Um, yeah, really good. I think biblically this is good. I see, I see some reservations here, uh, looking on the line. A little, a little sort of, a moment of, a moment of pinched lips just there, with a bit of a... Yeah, no, I'm, it's, it's still something to take home, isn't it? <laughs> it's still something. Let, let me just tell you, let me tell you something uh, that you might find interesting right now. So, so these aren't just random sums of money. 
These are actual sums of money that people won on lotteries, obviously, in different countries, including the US. Now, what you might not know about these particular sums of money is that they were all won by people who then became bankrupt within five years. Think about that. They were all won by someone who became bankrupt within five years of winning that sum of money. Now, I can imagine, well, I can't really imagine, <laughs> six million five hundred thousand pounds being spent in five years. Think about $27 million being spent within, within five years. I mean, some of the stories are literally within 18 months of winning. $27 million to bankruptcy. Think about that. Now think about $314,900,000 to be bankrupt within five years. Now, within this matrix of stories are some really torrid tales. Did you know that in stories from lottery winners over the last 30 years, it proved that 70% of lottery winners end up broke within five years of winning. 70%. Seven out of 10 lottery winners are broke within five years of winning the lottery. Isn't that remarkable? Have you ever thought that you would win that much money and then be broke and this guy living in a shed? <laughs> remarkable, right? Now, one third ended up actually financially bankrupt. So they were in debt and therefore had to suffer foreclosure on homes, golf jets, Lamborghinis, Bugatti Verons, etc., etc. They were actually in debt. It's a remarkable truth that in our world there is so much aspiration for wealth, but there is not aspiration for wisdom. And if you were to go out right now, on the, well, on a Saturday night, to every corner shop in the country and advise people who were going in to buy their lottery ticket, what would you say? It could be you. Or would you say, can I advise you not to spend two pounds on buying a run of lottery tickets tonight? Can I advise you instead to get some of this? Because if you've got some of this, you might, although you probably won't, get some of this. <clears throat> but having some of this is a necessity if you want any of this. But if you get all of this, but you've got none of this, you've not got this, you've not got this, and you've definitely not got this. So that is a complete waste of time. <laughs> you've just got the paperclip, which is actually quite useful. So I notice you've taken something away from tonight. So thank you very much. You can all take a seat. Thanks a lot. Now, if I'm in trouble, if I'm lost, I think I've said this before, I want to find someone who is not equally lost. Like, that seems to make sense. You know, if you're lost in the woods and someone says, oh, I, I'll help you, and then you go, have you been this way before? And they know, no, I've been lost in here for ages, but I'm sure I know this lostness better than you do, so we could, I could help you out. You're like, no, you know what, it's all right, thanks. I'll try and find someone who's been through these woods before. 
When it comes to money, Solomon knew more than most people about wealth. Now, he was billed as one of the richest kings in the ancient world. We even still today say, oh, he or she has the wealth of Solomon. I mean, it's remarkable that a king who lived three and a half thousand years ago is sort of notably still the person who everyone talks about their wealth. 3,000 years. They talk about this wealth still. It's remarkable. What a remarkable story. How can you possibly have the wealth of Solomon still referenced today? Extortionately wealthy. Exuberantly wealthy. So when you're taking advice about money, it's worth choosing people who've got real experience of money. It would be too easy to find people who had nothing and told you that money wasn't worth the effort. Oh, no, I wouldn't worry about that. You know, I haven't got any, you haven't got any, we'll, we'll not have any together. That's actually not that helpful, that's quite a common mentality. What we need is to talk to someone who has so much money, they don't know what to do with it. And Solomon is a great person to reference. In verse 10 and 11 of Proverbs, Solomon says something pretty radical. He says that silver, gold and rubies are not preferable to instruction, knowledge and wisdom. Again, why don't we pop over to the white horse tonight and we'll randomly pick on individuals at the bar and say to them, excuse me, your wallet looks quite full. My brain's also quite full. I'd like to exchange some of my knowledge for some of your money. Can you imagine how that would go down? Like, pretty badly. Now, people don't want to exchange their finance necessarily for someone else's knowledge, although, you know, they do to a level, you know. If you're in a great finance company, they normally have a, a little department that try and think about things, which is quite useful. That's normally why they're the successful ones. But people pay for coaching and people pay for counselling, people pay for guidance because actually they recognise that's worthwhile. But so many people don't. So many people think that money is the answer to their problems. It's not a problem. When Solomon says money is a problem, but knowledge, instruction, and wisdom are resolution to my problem. In 2002, Andrew Whitaker won $117 million. He was bankrupt by 2007, and his life was in absolute tatters. And he told Time magazine that he wishes that he'd just torn up his ticket. Now, it's funny, isn't it, the human spirit? Don't you get that sort of feeling like, oh, what an idiot. You know, you kind of, it's in all of us, oh, don't be so stupid, wishing you'd torn up your ticket. No one would really wish that. Andrew Whitaker did. You know, he he, he, he recognised that not had he only lost $117 million, he'd also lost the whole fabric of his family. He lost himself. You know, he lost everything for the sake of this apparent win. Now, I think spiritually there is a real cloud that comes over us when money's concerned. You might be experiencing that cloud right now. And that cloud sort of befuddles you into saying, hearing everything I'm saying right now is just like, not listening, this is not true. You know, it's a really strange cloud. Like, I find it, I'm sure you find it too, but as soon as people start talking about money not being the answer to their problems, everyone goes just kind of cloth-eared. It's really strange. And, and I would ask you, I'd invite you to use your critical faculties right now to ask yourself, why is your brain dynamically trying to befuddle what you're hearing? Why is it actively trying to deny this reality? 
why is Andrew Whitaker's testimony no use to you? Like, of course, for those of us who are struggling right now, many of you here tonight will be struggling, money is essential, important, and there isn't enough of it to go around. And I'm not talking here about trying to find some rationale that says, oh, don't worry about money. I've just been on the budgeting course because I'm worried about money. But there's a difference between being satisfied with what you need, which is essential to all of us, and this idea that if I just accrue a huge amount of money, my life will be sweet. I'm not diminishing the necessity for finance in your life. But what I'm trying to challenge is the idea that if I got an inordinate amount of finance suddenly, my life would be sweet, my life would be sorted. And I think it's that aspiration that's problematic in society because very few of us who've got what we need will then be satisfied with what we've got. This is another strange law of finance. You've got enough and you're satisfied that your needs have been satisfied, but then suddenly you're not satisfied that your needs have been satisfied and suddenly what you've got is no longer enough. There's a, a lovely children's book called A Squash and a Squeeze, which is one of the Julia Donaldson ones. And there's a little lady who lives in a little house, very, very nice house, and she, there's a little old wizardy man who walks around outside the house randomly, it's a bit odd, but uh, she says, dear old man, give me some wisdom, like my house is a squash and a squeeze. And he says, old lady, do take in a hen. So the old lady takes in a hen and she says, look, it was a squeeze for one and now, it's, now it's, it was too small for one, but now it's a squash for, for two. And the hen's clucking around the house. He says, and she says, what shall I do? And he says, oh, well, bring in a goat. So she says, well, it was a bit of a squeeze for two, but now it's a real nightmare for three. So there's a goat running around this tiny little house. And then she's still upset. And then she says to the old man, what shall I do? And he says, well, bring in a pig. So they get a pig in the house as well. And she says, oh, it was a nightmare when I had, you know, just the hen and the goat, and now I've got a pig. And then, he, then she says, well, what shall I do? And he says, bring in a cow. So the cow comes in, starts doing a dance on the table. The pig is eating all the food in the larder. The chicken is flying around the house, and she's really tearing her hair out. And she says, old man, what shall I do? And he says, take, you know, take everything out. So she takes everything out of the house and she says, oh man, this is genius. My house is fantastic. It's plenty big enough. You know, the reality is that when we've got more, we believe that we need more. It's only when we experience a squash and a squeeze that we can experience satisfaction with what we have. So much human ambition is around wealth and what wealth can provide. But you know, it turns out that achieving wealth as an ambition is incredibly disappointing. Any of you know that I spend some time coaching, I'm a life coach and I do a little bit of professional coaching, a very small book, uh, and, and, I, and I, I love that piece of work and it actually gives me a lot of, a lot of fruit, a lot of uh, life in, in the work that I do and therefore in the teaching ministry that I hopefully share. But what, what I love about it is it gives you very close proximity to people in different walks of life to you particularly people maybe in, in, in that echelon of high net worth. And I can absolutely tell you this from personal experience of coaching people in that, those brackets, that there is no differential between the happiness of people in the, in the middle tier of wealth and people in the absolute extreme upper end of wealth. The people up here are absolutely categorically not happier than the people who are down here. Now, what I want to clarify is that people who are down here are unhappy because the reality is that they haven't got enough money. So that is, this isn't about saying, oh, don't worry, you've got nothing to eat. 
just be happy because everyone's the same. That is not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is there is a definite correlation between unhappiness and poverty, but when you get into the mid-levels of middle-income England, if you correlate the happiness of this group who have enough and this group who have more than enough, there is no upswing in the curve of happiness. In fact, I would suggest to you that there's actually a downswing. There is definitely an optimal position, which is not about poverty, but it's not also about extreme wealth. And yet society has aspiration towards extreme wealth as an idea that will somehow experience an amazing sort of euphoria. I want to tell you a few things I noticed about extreme wealth and how uh, it works. The first thing is it, it isolates people. It makes people naturally deferential to people who have extreme wealth. This is really weird. So you might meet a celebrity person and you'd be like, oh, they're a celebrity. I feel a bit self-conscious. Oh, hello, Mr. Celebrity or Mrs. Celebrity person. So you can understand that. That's all right. You know, uh, you could see, you could meet a really sort of influential person. So that might be someone who is really successful in business or in politics. Like, oh, wow, a, a really influential person. Uh, amazing. Oh, wow, incredible. I feel a bit differential towards them. Then you meet a really rich person. And it was like, oh, wow, a really rich person. Oh, I've got to be really differential to that person. They're really rich. What is the correlation between those three different categories of being? It's so strange. It, what, what, what would make us deferential towards wealth, specifically? Especially wealth that doesn't associate itself with achievement. Why would you say that a lottery winner who happens to have 117 million should be treated differently to your next door neighbor who lives in a regular one up one down townhouse in London? What's the difference? Somehow, wealth makes us deferential. And wealth makes us deferential and therefore wealth isolates those people who are wealthy. So people stop treating them like normal people and start sort of tiptoeing around them. And then people often start saying the things that wealthy people want them to say. Oh, you look amazing. You're great. You're fabulous. I'll never say anything to you that's really honest. And I'm guessing that somewhere in that is that, lest you don't give me any of your money. You know, that, that, that there's this strange dance of isolation that goes on around really wealthy people. And it's not surprising to me that wealthy people are willing to pay for instruction, knowledge, and wisdom at that level, because they're the things that tend to dry up with wealth. If you talk to someone who's really wealthy, they'll say, well, no one tells me what they think anymore. Why not? I have no idea. Why do lots of people suddenly appear around me who want to be my friend, and where have all my friends gone? You know, strange phenomenon happen, and we could spend hours extrapolating why those things happen, but it's just really important that we get, as Christians, our head in the game and say, well, what is Solomon talking about when he says that instruction and knowledge and wisdom are far more precious than gold, silver, or rubies? As you can see with our lottery winners, wealth and wisdom definitely don't go hand in hand. Think about it for a minute. I know these numbers are really hard to calculate because for us all here, it's like, I, hope, I think for most of us here, others will stop being really deferential to one person. No, we're not, we're not going to do that. Um, see, that's my little, my funny deferential dance. You'll see, you'll notice me when I'm being deferential. I can do this a bit like Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. Um, 
So 100 million might sound like a lot, right? Sounds like a lot. Who would struggle to spend 100 million? Just me? No, most people. Most people struggle, right? Well, let me give you a clue how you could spend 100 million. So one Gulfstream private jet, 43 million. Just one of those. I see, in the shopping basket, just like that. One Bugatti Veyron, that's the sort of car, if you don't know, it's very nice. Goes about 200 miles an hour. Not that you can go 200 miles an hour in England. Uh, that's two million. And then a townhouse on Upper Grosvenor Street, just up the road from here, 54.5 million. So that leaves you 500,000 pounds to live off, which will just about service your Gulfstream jet for one year. After that, you'll be bankrupt. Now think about that for a minute. That we, ostensibly, we have just spent 100 million pounds just now in three crazy steps. It's that easy. You know, when we think about lottery winners spending, you know, how could you possibly spend 314 million dollars over five years? We could spend it in five minutes. Wisdom and finance don't go hand in hand. You know, ultimately, this stuff seems unreachable, but this weird thing that money does to our minds, this weird fog, it exists for us and exists for people who have that money in their pocket. You know, I've heard the testimonies of people who, who have this experience of being like, just could not control the level of, of wanderlust, of greed, of profligacy that overcame me when I suddenly had money. I, I came out of a, a sort of little fraternity in Cambridge and a lot of guys did extremely well. And their kind of discussions were, I'm not happy, I'm not happier, uh, I've just got all this stuff. No one told me that when you get to the top, there's just nothing there. Um, do you want anything? I've got all this stuff to get rid of. You know, this idea that somehow are the answers to our life are going to be found in the things that we accrue, I want to tell you, I, I just don't believe it. And you're going, yeah, but that's because you're an Anglican vicar. And you have to say that because your life was not marked out for that kind of success. And yeah, you might be right, I'm just fooling myself out right now to make myself feel much better. Or I'm just trusting on the wisdom of the wealthiest man in the world at the time. You know Solomon's wealth? Solomon's wealth today would be equivalent to $2.1 trillion. Solomon was the first trillionaire. Like he literally, if you, if you read 1 Kings 10.23, it says, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and, interestingly, for wisdom. And all the earth sought Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought him every present, vessels of silver, vessels of gold and garments and armor and spices and horses and mules, a rate year by year. And apparently Solomon's courts literally People would truck around there with pretty much everything that they had. You know, year on year, nations would just bring their tributes to Solomon to try and stay on side with the big guy. Like, he had so much wealth. He really could speak from experience. If you, were, if you move into verse 2 of our reading today, it says, he makes this unusual literary transition to personify wisdom, which is, I think, fascinating. If you read a lot of the Proverbs, you'll find that wisdom kind of gets her own voice. And I think 
what Solomon's trying to identify is that he really believes that the wisdom comes from the Lord. Like, he, he, he doesn't trust in his own wisdom. He's not like, I am Solomon the wise. Obviously, everyone else thinks that. That's why they bring him tributes to hear what he has to say. But I think Solomon specifically personifies wisdom, and he does it in the feminine, which I find really helpful, because, again, God isn't gendered. But he, he, he personifies wisdom as female almost outside of himself, because that helps to separate him from the wisdom that he's receiving. And he very much sees wisdom being in the seat of God. So he's like, he's got the humility to recognize that this isn't his gift, but actually it's God's gift to him. He doesn't gender it with him so he can identify it aside from himself. And then he shares it with this really unique voice. So you suddenly come into this text, I, wisdom, personified, dwell together with prudence, I possess knowledge and discretion. I want to say there's some really uncool words in the scriptures tonight. If you think about it, like words that we really don't like in our society, words that we think are really Victorian. Like think of a word that would go down really, really badly at a party and then pick prudence. Like, you know, can you imagine saying that? Yeah, I really think I need a bit more prudence, mate. What about you? Oh yeah, I was just thinking I need a bit more discretion. You know, can you imagine it? It's just like, it would never happen at a party. Oh, I've been really struggling with my prudence recently, boys. Yeah, I've noticed you have a lack of discretion there, brother. You know, it's just, just stuff you'd never do, right? You'd never say. This is my beer, by the way, if you're sort of just tipping. It, was a, it, it, it wasn't my jaunty walk again. I wasn't doing my jaunty dance. I was just sipping my beer or whatever it was, drinking my wine. It didn't work as a visual aid, no. It just looks like I'm doing something weird in the microphone. But, you know, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. In a conversation, these are words that are just not cool at all. And yet they're the mark of wisdom, particularly when we're talking about money. You know, if you think about, about the, this disposition, wisdom dwells together with prudence. That's kind of like sound financial judgment. It's about like holding things, like with, with a kind of tentative caution. I need to be prudent. You know, I need to think carefully about what I'm doing. I need to make sure I'm not getting ahead of myself. And then discretion, which is this kind of like modesty. Like if you read the stories of these lottery rags to riches to rags stories, like prudence and discretion are the two things that are lacking in a major way. And, and one of the things I notice even today, when you, you know when they have that thing in the newspaper or, or online in the news and it's like, you know, Bob and Jill have just won £168 million on the Euro Millions lottery thing. When you see them with their bottle of champagne, they've already failed. Because if you've seen them with a bottle of champagne, then they've got neither prudence nor discretion. Because if they had, they would have adopted the the opportunity that you have to remain anonymous as a lottery winner today. And, and therefore, the lottery winners who are most likely to succeed in holding on to their net worth are the lottery winners who do not appear with a bottle of champagne, blowing bubbles, telling everyone that they've just won £186 million. And would anyone like to come around for lunch tomorrow and tell them about their business plan that they are starting somewhere in, in Siberia this week? Would they like to invest? You know, the reality is, 
if you lack discretion and prudence at the start of the journey, you're not going to find it on the journey. You know, and for each of us here, there's something in this wisdom, discretion and prudence. You might be thinking, well, Will, I might wait till I'm a lottery winner before I start exercising that gift. But I want to encourage you to start exercising it now. You might not ever have the wealth of a lottery winner, but you're much more likely to be successful and have as much as you need. Now, when we start exercising prudence and discretion when we have little, we'll be exercising prudence and discretion when we have a little bit, a little bit more, and even a lot. And that enables us to be generous and kingdom-minded with our finances. Because weirdly, when we exercise wisdom, prudence, and discretion, we also have the ability to divest what we have in ways which are prudent and generous and kind and offer some discretion. I, I love it when I hear that people have given some finances to the church and wish to remain anonymous. And Laura gets this quite often. You know, we've received secret finance. That's a, a word that brings joy to my heart. Secret finance. Because it sounds like those two words should never really travel together. Secret and finance. I was chatting with a friend who's uh, a very kind of well-known coach just at lunchtime today. We were talking about a particular family who became famous with the OxyContin medicine in America, which has led to you know, thousands of people dying and people developing these terrible addictions. Their names are all across British museums all around the UK. Suddenly those names are getting filled in with plaster because actually prudence, discretion, weren't part of their story. And other parts of their story have meant that they've been willing to take money at other people's expense. That reality is true across classes. There's nothing about class, nothing about education. It's a heart disposition. You know, when we can uncouple ourselves from the power of money, we'll have real power. That's why Solomon says that he has, uh, in verse 14, counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. Think about that for a minute. This is the most powerful man in the world. He's not talking about the power that money brings him. He's got that in spades. What he's talking about is the power that wisdom gives him. The wisdom of prudence, the wisdom of discretion. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have understanding and power. He has power over his own stuff. This is when I, you know, that, how's the brain thing going for you guys right now? Still feeling a little bit static, white noise, a bit befuddled? Now, think about the power to turn that off. Think about the power to change your disposition towards money so rather than the shutters coming down, you're like, oh yeah, I kind of know what that means. That's what Solomon had. He could see, imagine Solomon's court, right? He's like, 100 wives, something like that, 600 concubines, they're kind of fake wives. Then he had, that's not quite right, is it? Well, sort of. Something going on there. We won't go into detail. <laughs> then, then he's got like miles of pots of gold, like treasures everywhere, all sorts of stuff from the old times which they thought were important. Loads of special sheep, special goats, special cows. It's probably a bit smelly. There's loads of stuff going on. There's stuff everywhere. And he's seeing his wealth, and he's seeing all these people like doing the funny sycophantic dance, coming up the aisle with, with like pots of gold, saying, Come on, Solomon, I've got loads of stuff for you. Think how big this guy's head could be. Think how like 
This guy wrote the Proverbs. It's amazing. Come on. It's amazing, right? This guy could be in like the, like the ancient Near East edition of Hello magazine or Grazia, like writing really airless articles about how he bought a new goat and how it's like the fastest goat in the region. But instead, he writes the book of greatest wisdom in history, a book that everyone still relies on today to get a good perspective on things. I think that's amazing. Like, today, try and think of an alternative. Super richest man in the world writes incredible book about wisdom that everyone wants to read. Don't know, I haven't seen one that I want to read. But Solomon has it all, and yet he delivers this incredible wisdom. And he's saying, actually, I've got power over money. In real terms, he was the wealthiest, not because he had the most money, but because he had the most power over his own money. That's the thing to aim at. You know, when it comes to giving, I find it amazingly powerful. How much money has power over me? No, don't give that much, Will. That would be bad for you. Okay, money, I'll just make that a little bit less. You know, have you heard that voice? Is that just me? You know, no, don't be that generous. That is too generous. I I've never known anyone become poor through being too generous. But, okay then. You know, you found yourself backing away? It's funny, isn't it? It's amazing how much power money has over us. Solomon knew what it was to have power over his own money. He identifies four boundary lines. We're going to come into landmass, so I don't know if you want to come up right now. Four boundary lines. Wisdom. Hate pride. Hate arrogance hate evil behavior, and hate perverse speech. Now, two of those are dispositions and two of them are byproducts. Pride and arrogance take God off the throne in our lives and they're gateways to evil behavior and perverse speech. So two of them are dispositions and two of them are products of those dispositions. Solomon, is, you can come up and start playing behind me. Like, this creates some mood music. I'm going to put my white suit on and come back up out of the floor. I'm joking, not really. I was just playing with the idea of what Solomon might have wanted to do, but didn't do. Two dispositions, pride and arrogance, and two outworkings, evil behavior and perverse speech. And what I want to do to say tonight is why don't we stand? We want to put God back on the throne in our lives. And you're all saying, but Will, I haven't got any money. But what I want to say to you is that money has the power to create an idol of itself well before we've ever got any money to really idolize. You know, and I reckon there are millions of people in this country who've got no money today, but money is their primary idol. They want to worship it, they want to find it, and ultimately, if they do find it, it will control them. But in the kingdom of God, we're going to say, God, I want to put aside pride and arrogance I want to put Jesus on the throne in my life and I want wisdom. That's my go-to. I want the wisdom of the Lord in all things. That's what I'm all about. St. Augustine helpfully said, love God and do what you will. If you get that right, everything will come together.
make God the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in your life, everything else falls into place. So let's pray together as we begin this time of ministry and worship. Jesus, right now we need your protection because we've been talking about money and it's a spiritual battle. But we want to say, Jesus, would you just take your place right now on the throne in our lives? We uh, submit to you. We want to have power over money. We don't want money to have power over us. And we want to pray that rather than going after rubies and gold and silver, we'd go after knowledge and instruction and wisdom primarily in our lives. Help us to be set aside, Father, for those things. That we'd have generous hearts, that we'd build the kingdom, that we'd see your kingdom come in glory and in power. And we'd be soul and light in a world that's lost its way as far as the money is concerned. Come, Holy Spirit, right now, would you? displace money in our lives, in our hearts. We take authority in Jesus' name to establish a throne in our lives which gives glory to God once again. Let's worship together. Amen. Amen.